0: One of the ways that you can control a bit your chances of becoming myopic or progressing is by spending time outdoors. And it's long been known that there's this link. And the idea here is that if you can actually get the eye illuminated with light of the proper wavelength, then you can actually stimulate certain cells that are sensitive to light of these wavelengths. And they basically go through a pathway that increases the amount of ocular dopamine, a compound called dopamine that actually has been shown to regulate eye growth.
1: Welcome to the digital therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borovic. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode. And it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. Today, I spoke with Mark Woodka, CEO of Dopovision. In their own words, DopoVision is pioneering the development of innovative solutions that target the eye's innate dopamine pathway to address unmet needs in ophthalmology using digitally delivered light. But before we dive in, I met Mark many years ago through none other than Francesca Woodke. Yes, Francesca was also on this podcast last year. You can check episode number 42 and find out more about Francesca and the company she's building, NEN. But I digress. The moment I met Mark, I loved his sense of humor, his sharpness, and GSD attitude, oh yeah, and his cooking skills. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark. Mark, welcome to the DTX podcast. I've been looking forward to it since I saw you on the big stage at DTX London, and I realized that I've had your better half on the show. Uh, Francesca, and I said, you guys are in the same industry. How do I not have Mark, especially with the cool stuff that you guys are doing at Dopavision? So welcome. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and don't forget about one small little fact as well, a fun fact.
0: Sure. Yeah. Happy to do so. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks very much for having me. So. um just a couple of quick points about my background and kind of what led me uh, to where I am today. I do have a, a PhD in biology, so I, I have a science background. But after my postdoc work, I got very interested in business, as a lot of people that, uh, that did their postdoc in New York do. They, they see a lot of these, their friends and stuff going off and doing these cool jobs that they hadn't thought about before. So I was able to land a job uh, managing sales and marketing for a bioinformatics startup. As my first job out of of postdoc and i did that for three and a half years which is almost you could think of almost sort of having a digital component almost to it right kind of early on after that i wanted to broaden my business experience a bit more so i went on to do a a couple of years in management consulting i followed that with some time uh, at a bank doing equity research and then after that i started a, a consulting company with francesca we actually did work for mostly smaller startup companies helping them think about their value proposition From there, I joined Big Pharma, where I spent a a good 12 years, where I had some roles uh, starting in portfolio management, then some commercial role. But I finally, it led me to leading some of our development programs. And while I was there, one of the programs that I led was a digital therapeutic uh, in the ophthalmology space for a a pediatric condition. I decided that maybe 12 years was enough time in, in pharma. I had actually gone thinking I would do two years, right? And then I ended up staying because there was a lot to do. And I decided that, you know, with Big Pharma and the great resources comes a lot of, you know, red tape. And so it's kind of difficult sometimes to get things done efficiently. And I wanted to get back to my startup roots. That was how I got connected uh, with Dopavision. Um, so at the time, one of the co-founders who was the CEO was looking to move on to another role. And so um, I happened to meet with them and uh, go through the interview process. And I joined uh, Dopavision in uh, in the spring of uh, 2022. So that's kind of what brought me to where I am uh, here in my background. On the interesting fact point, so as you know, because uh, I've had you and Marina over, I, I do like to cook a lot, right? And so I don't know if you've heard, but there's been a, a shortage of hot sauces because of climate challenges in growing um, hot peppers. So uh, my youngest son and I had gotten hold of at a farmer's market uh, uh, some hot peppers, and we actually made a fermented sriracha sauce that we actually finished yesterday. And it's fantastic. So I do recommend for anyone out there who's, who's feeling, I get feeling the burn no pun intended of the uh, of the hot sauce uh, shortage. Go ahead and try and make your own. It's really really easy and it's a lot of fun to do with, uh, especially if you do it with one of your kids who likes hot food.
1: Love it. And uh, Marina and I will come right over for the next batch.
0: You're welcome.
1: Well, you know, appreciate the background, the fun fact, and I'm sure we can talk more about working and being 24 by 7 working with your wife back in the history of your world. But let's keep moving forward. So tell us a little bit more about Dopavision, uh, maybe a little bit of the history of the company. How did it kind of come about and how did it get started?
0: Yeah, so the idea behind Dopavision originally um, was that the co-founders, so so um, Hamid uh, Bamani and, and Stefan Zundel, the, the co-founders, they were really interested in finding ways that they could leverage technology to address unmet needs for patients in a way that fit right into their daily lives. So for them, that was kind of almost one of their like rules, that it had to be something that a patient could fit into, the, into their lives. So um, Hamid was actually doing uh, quite a bit of, of research in, in vision science uh, at the time. And so they discovered that common um, ophthalmology condition called myopia, which is also another fancy name for nearsightedness, was regulated by a specific pathway in the eye that could be stimulated using your own smartphone. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that later when I discuss our product, but that was kind of the genesis. They said, look, how do we come up with a way to leverage technology to to solve a problem for patients that fits right into their daily lives? And that was kind of how the, the idea for the company was formed. So back in 2017, they they put the, the company together. And then over time, they developed some early proof of mechanism studies that showed that, look, this really does have some promise in this condition. And they then moved on to uh, raising uh, first a seed round. They then got some grant, a grant from the German government, uh, raised a Series A fund in 2021, and then another uh, grant from the uh, German government in uh, 2022. So that's sort of how they got this thing uh, off the ground.
1: Yeah, and it's amazing. So some of this technology and the grants. Uh, I know Germany is actually big on a lot of the research and and funding some of the companies in the health tech space and beyond. You kind of alluded to you know a novel way of you know nearsightedness myopia. Before we get into the user experience, I mean, was this a kind of a bottoms up like we found this technology and there is a need, or it sounds like well, there's myopia and this product can work for it or like the market the size of the myopia market how big is that market to begin with
0: so myopia is actually a staggeringly large market so the rate of myopia progression has been really dramatically increasing the rate of of prevalence over the last couple of generations uh, to the point where it's expected that by 2050 about half of the global population the entire global population will be myopic that's five billion people by 2050 to give you an idea of the size I'll tell you, I recall a story where I was at a, a retina conference when talking to a friend of mine who told me, now I've been starting to get interested in myopia as a potential next uh, area from the pharma company I was working for to get into. And one of my friends, I, I mentioned this to him, he said, did you know that in Singapore, I believe it was, that the, the prevalence of myopia, and I think one generation, went from 35% to 80%. And I didn't believe him because that was just too staggeringly fast for me to really get my brain around. And he actually was able to grab from the audience. So a guy walking by, a myopia expert from Singapore who came over and explained to me, yes, it's really been challenging. And it's been driven by a few things. There's likely a genetic component of some sort, But two other things have been happening. One is that when we get education, you know, when kids are now spending much more of their time indoors because they're going to school, they're spending less time outdoors. And we do know that spending time outdoors, being exposed to certain wavelengths of light, you know, focusing on things that are farther in the distance, they do prevent you from forming myopia. And if you do form myopia, they slow the progression of myopia. And so this is really important because. As myopia progresses, for some unfortunate few, about 20% of the population, they get into what we call the high myopia stage, the severe myopes. For those that know the lingo, this is classified as people with myopia of six diopters or worse. And what happens to these people is that they actually become very, very likely, much more likely, excuse me, to then get sight-threatening conditions later in life. So in their 40s, 50s, 60s, they're much more prone to retinal detachment, retinal degeneration, glaucoma, things that actually rob you of your sight. And I actually had a friend whose wife was only in her mid-40s, highly myopic, and she started uh, experiencing what we call pathologic myopia. And to preserve her sight, she needed to get monthly injections uh, in her eye of of a treatment to prevent her from going blind. So this is really a, a big issue.
1: Let's actually talk a little bit then. So I've been diagnosed with it, and I know you're not out in the market yet. Obviously, you have the design. You're going through clinical trials, which we'll get a little bit further. Walk us through that patient experience using Dopavision.
0: So if you remember, I said a minute ago that one of the ways that you can control a bit your chances of becoming myopic or progressing is by spending time outdoors. And it's long been known that there's this link. And the idea here is that if you can actually get the eye illuminated with light of the proper wavelength, then you can actually stimulate certain cells that are sensitive to light of these wavelengths, and they basically go through a pathway that increases the amount of ocular dopamine, a compound called dopamine that actually has been shown to regulate eye growth. So this is what you're looking to do. The problem is, again, that you're looking at spending you know three additional hours outdoors a day in order to try to come up with some way of managing this properly. So what our product does is using a standard smartphone so the child or caregiver can use their own smartphone in an over-the-counter little VR headset that you drop it into, and a a Bluetooth controller, the child can play a game while they're getting a light of this very specific wavelength directed right at a specific spot in the eye. This is what we call the blind spot, which is where there's a high concentration of uh, these special cells called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. And when you stimulate them with this light, you can then increase ocular dopamine and therefore hopefully slow down the progression of the eye. So what's the experience for the child? Instead of you know having to go outside for three extra hours a day, they can play a game for 10 minutes, maybe once or twice a day. Right now we're testing twice a day. One of our key opinion leaders calls it the outdoors in an app. So for a child, this can be really quite engaging. And the reason that we like this is that what's available right now to control this is, is not really that satisfying, right? There are old pharmaceuticals that are being used now to control myopia progression. One's called atropine, which when you use it at higher concentrations, it's really quite irritating to the eye. So what they do is they bring the concentration down so that the child can tolerate it, but then you're getting a compromise, right, with, with efficacy. The other problem is, of course, a lot of um, both eye care providers and parents don't want to necessarily expose their child to a pharmaceutical that they don't really understand what the long-term effects are. There are some special lenses that you can wear, but they either come in the form of contact lenses, which are a difficult to fit in children. Remember, we're talking about kids. Usually you start getting treated for the six years old, right? So think about trying to put a contact lens in a six year old, or they have challenges with, for example, infection risk. With kids, um, you can actually, uh, some of these lenses you have to be careful not to abrade the front of the eye, the uh, tissue called the cornea. So these are challenges that we have. There are new spectacle lenses that the child can wear that help a little bit, but the child has to wear them all day and kids don't always like to wear glasses. And the example I give is my, my son, the one I made the hot sauce with, he started wearing glasses a few years back and we called his teacher after a few months to say, hey, how's he doing? Can he see the board okay? Is he having a a good experience with the glasses? And the teacher said, I didn't know your son wore glasses. (laughs) So so basically he would wear them on the way out the door, he would go to school, wouldn't wear them all day, would wear them coming back. And these glasses, in order to be effective, you really need to wear them. So you can see that there's some real unmet need there for uh, an experience where the child can actually, really have something that they wanna do that they don't mind doing that then is effective in, in controlling their myopia.
1: Going back to the market just quickly, what's the prevalence in the child myopia space or pediatric myopia?
0: It depends on, on, on what country that you're in. But in some countries, again, I'll, I'll take you to Asia where it's in, in the 80s. It's up in the high in 80%. In the West, I think, if I remember correctly, we're still seeing it just if we look at the pediatric, we're still seeing it somewhere in like the 30, 35%, but that's starting to rise. And that's why we're going to end up seeing the entire global population be at about 50% by 2050.
1: And a little bit of the follow-up, which uh, I think both you and your wife uh, decided to go into the pediatric market, which is tough, right? Just from many, many perspectives. So why pediatrics? Why child myopia versus adult myopia, which is also on the rise?
0: It's a great question. So at this point right now, most of the myopia progression that you will experience will be before your end adolescence. So for the most part, the time to intervene is when the myopia is progressing and try and get it early. We don't know yet if we'll be able to actually reverse myopia. That's something that we will look into in the future. We also are interested in can we prevent myopia from ever occurring in the first place or catch you when you're really, really early and prevent those we also have not looked into yet. That's a future uh, step for us. But the main reason that we're looking to PDASH is that's the time to intervene for myopia at the moment.
1: And you alluded to light, but can we dive a little bit deeper into kind of the mechanisms of action and maybe tie that to the extent, I know as companies go through clinical trials, there's some quiet periods, et cetera, but to the extent possible, can you tie the clinical trial, what you guys are trying to prove to the mechanism of action?
0: So the idea here is that once you stimulate the eye and you're now increasing this, um, the dopamine that you would find in the eye, therefore hopefully controlling the growth you're going to see a couple of changes that you can measure in the clinic. And what we did first is we actually measured the ability for uh, stimulation of the, of the blind spot with blue light to affect two biomarkers of myopia progression. One is the thickening of a tissue in the eye called a choroid. So if you can increase the thickness of the choroid, then that is usually a sign that is predictive of long-term myopia progression. So we did a few translational medicine um, experiments that showed that stimulating, in fact, does increase the choroid. And the second thing it does is it actually will decrease the axial length. That's the length of the eyeball from front to back on that axis. And that is also a very good marker of basically myopia control. In a very short period of time, that's transient. You can measure that within an hour. So those then serve as the basis for us to then enter into a proof of concept study, which is the one that we're running now. This is the myopia X1 study. This study is now looking to measure, first of all, the change in refraction, how much of a myopia do you have? And we're basically looking to show that in a six month period, the child's eye is changing at a slower rate Than you would expect if they were not treated. Now, ethically, it's difficult right now to do a sham trial where you have no treatment because remember, I said we don't know if we can reverse it. So what we do instead is we do two things. We have one of the spectacle lenses that's available now as as another arm in the study. It's not statistically powered to compare, but we're looking for, we're able to see if there's changes. And then we're also using a, a comprehensive natural history database. If you look at the children we have, their eyes should be expected to change by a certain amount. And we're going to measure and show that they change by a smaller amount than what we were expecting. So we'll look at both, again, the refraction, how many diopters they change, they've had, as well as the axial length to show that the eyes grown at a slower rate than would be expected. So that's how we're trying to tie the mechanism directly into the clinical trial that we're running now.
1: And I know you guys made some changes to the clinical trial early in the year. And I think part of it is also, if I'm not mistaken, you guys are leveraging Linda's health capabilities as well, who uh, Mary was just on the show. So maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, the changes in the trial.
0: So a couple of the big changes we had, we really tried to make the trial a, a little bit more u- user-friendly for both the subjects as well as for the caregivers. That Because again, these are pediatric patients, right? So we needed to make it a little bit easier. We made it a little bit simpler. The the visits are a little bit less burdensome. We try to make everything a bit more streamlined. The other thing that we did, which I think I mentioned, was that we basically added in that arm where the patient had spectacles. Now, parents don't have to worry about putting their children into a study and then having them not be treated for six months when potentially the kid could be getting irreversible loss. We also then, as you said, we started working with Linda's Health as well in two ways. One, we're actually working with them on one of our sites that we're actually um, working specifically in the UK. And then also they're providing for us a social media campaign to help us drive patients to all of our sites in every country. So they've been uh, really a good partner and we've really enjoyed working with them. And uh, and again, for us to be able to find uh, someone reliable like that, that can actually deliver what they promise when, when it comes to recruiting, I think it was quite nice. So yeah, really good experience there. And, and again, I can tell you that the study uh, just finished uh, recruiting a few weeks ago. So we are on track to be uh, giving the first interpretable results from the six-month primary endpoint at the end of Q1 2024. So really excited for those results to come out.
1: Indeed. And, you know, obviously clinical trials are done to ultimately go to commercial market, right? Uh, so maybe you can chat a little bit about, uh, I know Dopavision is German-based to my understanding. We know that Germany has led reimbursements for digital therapies, you know, with Diga and now this France. How are you looking at the uh, commercialization of this amazing technology, what sounds like?
0: So first of all, you mentioned, D, and of course, as we finish this proof-of-concept study and look to what evidence we need to generate next, we will be having those discussions with all the relevant uh, bodies to make sure that we understand what's needed with these things. One challenge that we're going to face that I think everyone faces is that actually, in general, myopia control right now is not reimbursed at a very high level. The problem that we run into with payers, and again, I think a lot of people run into these problems, but... Two things. One, as I mentioned, it's a huge, huge indication, right? So the potential burden for the payer um, budget is going to be quite massive if they, if they start looking into maybe treating half the population for something as time goes on. The second challenge that you run into, of course, is as I mentioned, well, a lot of payers will pay for like a screening visit, maybe a pair of eyeglasses, right? You know, which is not super, super expensive. They don't really see the benefit of controlling myopia progression, keeping people out of that danger zone, right, where a billion people could be sitting in this high myopia danger zone. They don't really see the economic benefit of that for quite some time. Right. So there's a bit of a challenge. there. So we're looking into, again, how do we, A, discuss the pharmaco-economic benefits with the pairs, but at the same time, we're also looking at, you know, what's the appetite for, you know, potentially um, people paying for this out of pocket? So we're really investigating everything right now. So um, we're just doing our proof-of-concept study now, so we're maybe a little bit early, but this is something that we really have to consider.
1: We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Mark Woodka. CEO of Dopavision. So you mentioned earlier in the conversation that, Uh, myopia could potentially down the line when people are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, lead to other debilitating diseases like glaucoma as an example. Do you think, or the team has the hypothesis that the same technology can
0: be used to treat something like a glaucoma or other eye diseases? I think I mentioned before that we're looking to expand in myopia, right? Maybe we, we're going to look into the future, see if there's some possibility to either reverse or prevent myopia in the future. There's also reason to believe that this technology could also be relevant for other neurological conditions as well as other ophthalmological conditions. So we're looking into those right now. We are right now working to generate some uh, intellectual property around it. So I couldn't go too specific at the moment, but I can tell you that we do see some interesting promise for this uh, outside of myopia, and we are looking into that uh, as well. And as I said, we're trying to file some IP on that right now.
1: Understood, and I appreciate it. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hey Mark, what is your vision for Dopavision? Is it that it becomes a key offering in every optometrist's office? If yes, what do you believe is needed to get there?
0: Thanks Chandana, that's, that's a fantastic question and, and one that we're thinking about quite a bit. So. We do see a large role for myopia X and maybe some of our additional product offerings in every optometry office for the following reason. If you think about the sheer size, again, of this indication, you think about the potential to overwhelm our healthcare system and our eye care providers, what's going to be really important is for these uh, optometrists to be able to come with a way that they can deal with these patients uh, relatively efficiently. So we think of ourselves, again, what's interesting, if you think about our delivery, right, our delivery is a light-based delivery. It in itself is not digital, right? What we're doing is we're delivering it digitally in a way that we can potentially have better outcomes for patients, something that's fun and easy to use, customizable, better access because it's, it's all consumer grade electronics. So what we see is the future is an optometrist that's able to potentially leverage telehealth to help, you know, do the initial uh, screen of the patient, maybe monitor them, and at the same time be able to prescribe a product like ours that the patient can then access through an app and, and all through a hardware they buy on their own. So you can see where potentially an optometrist could reach a lot more patients in a way that would still be efficient for their business, provide hopefully going to be a state-of-the-art control of their myopia progression, but at the same time, not overwhelm their system. What do we need to get there? We need evidence. So most of the optometrists and ophthalmologists we've spoken to, no surprise, they'd like to see, okay, show me outcomes after, you know, a year, after two years, depending on the doctor. We have have them binned in different levels of technology adoption. But the idea is to provide that information, show that it's very safe, which of course is one of our keys here, that we have a very safe therapy and that they can be comfortable prescribing this to their patients. So that's what we see for getting this into the optometry offices.
1: And I'm going to jump in here real quick. Is there also a feedback loop to either the caregivers or the optometrists? So are you capturing the data as well?
0: Yes. In fact, one of the things that is really special about when you deliver things as we are digitally is just that. So you can actually have a portal, which we do have, which would then tell the parent or the caregiver or the eye care provider, hey, this patient is doing their therapy or not doing their therapy. And it gives them a chance to intervene. And we're also talking to potential partners about how we might also be able to measure the vision and the change in the vision so that you compare that with the uh, information you're getting about the treatment and then have a full understanding of how the treatment's going, how the progression's going, do we need to intervene with something else, add something on, or is this something that's proceeding satisfactorily? That's a real key benefit to digital delivery that I think you don't get with the glasses or an eye drop.
1: This has all been super interesting um, and I wanna to get to a parallel I'm seeing a bit I think you've seen a couple of weeks back, uh, Achille dropped the Rx, completely going OTC. Their game, your game, pediatric market, pediatric market, you know, the prevalence of the uh, underlying disease is much larger in the adult space as well, right? As as you pointed out also, your thoughts on the Achille move uh, and how you guys are looking at this?
0: I think it's a, it's a good move. I will tell you one thing. I believe that eventually getting to over the counter delivery of these therapies is going to be key to realizing the promise of digital. Think about it for a minute, right? Obviously, like there's all these benefits we talk about. You can make it more fun, engaging, you can customize it, you can track it, et cetera. But really, at the end of the day, when paired, especially with a telehealth type solution where you can diagnose, monitor, et cetera, with something, then this actually kind of frees up, I think, a lot the burden from the eye care provider. They can take care of maybe some of the more severe ones. Once you know that everything's okay, that you don't have a severe eye problem, like the the ability for a parent to be able to say, look, I understand I can I can monitor this in my child, maybe using a like I mentioned, some of the people we're talking about partnering with where you can measure the, the vision as it progresses, and be able to feel like, okay, I have a safe product that I can then download myself without even necessarily leaving my home, my child can use it. And I feel like they're getting an effective therapy. I think that that is the promise of digital. And I think if until we go OTC with a lot of these things, you're really going to be getting half of that, right? You can still get a lot of benefit, but that's really what's going to let it expand really rapidly to a number of people. Last but not least, I apologize when going on too long about this. I think that it also really broadly increases access, not just because of the fact that, okay, you know, you don't have to go to a doctor if you don't want to, but maybe you can't go to a doctor, right? An example I give is that I was working on a project when I was in pharma with a rural Brazilian population, and we interviewed a patient on like a laptop, you know, team sort of connection. And when they finished, the person on the ground in Brazil said, she's never seen a laptop before. And I thought, oh my gosh, we have to be careful. They don't have digital tools. We have to be careful to make sure everything's printed. She goes, no, no, no. Everyone has a smartphone and a data plan. These people can't always get to a doctor. But so if you have something that you've done the work, you've demonstrated that it's safe and effective, and then it can be, the therapy can be managed and the condition can be managed by the caregiver or the subject themselves, that's the secret for OTC. And that I think helps us realize the promise of digital.
1: Mark, you've been an entrepreneur. You've been in a large company with some slow moving processes. You're back in the entrepreneurial world. Um, and I always ask what advice you would give and kind of have to pick a destination for that advice. I'm gonna go with entrepreneurs. What advice would you give entrepreneurs entering the DTX space, especially in this market and now?
0: That's a great question. I'll tell you, I could probably still use a lot of advice myself.
1: Uh, we all can, for sure. Yeah. <laughs>
0: One thing that I, that I would say that I, I keep coming up against, and I, and I see people that struggle with this as well, is to be really clear about your value proposition across the entire chain of your stakeholders. It's not enough to have a cool device or a new device, right? You have to think about how's this going to fit into how my patient life works. How's it going to fit into the person I want prescribing this? How's it going to fit into their workflow? Like, if you're going to be going for reimbursement, how is this going to be viewed by the people that are going to be paying for this at the end of the day? It's like, I think that people tend to focus on maybe one of those or two of those at the most. But if you think all the way across the value chain, you might see that there's trade-offs that you're making that are going to end up causing a block that you didn't intend. So that idea of kind of trying to holistically look at the whole, the whole chain from front to back and at least understand everyone's point of view, I think that this is really an important thing to think about. And I think people miss it too often.
1: We started with you, Mark. Let's end this episode with you. What gets you up in the morning?
0: I'd say that for me, really what gets me up in the morning is solving really hard problems for patients with really smart people, right? So when you have like a challenge that seems really, really difficult, but then you have a good group that you're working with and you can come to some solution that maybe is new That I find really, really rewarding. And when you can attach meaning to it, when it actually, you're like, this is going to help patients either get access to my product or be able to use it better, then it just adds a lot of meaning to it. So that's really what kind of gets me jazzed and gets me up in the morning.
1: Well, Mark, thank you very much for being here and to all the listeners till next time.
0: Thanks for having me. Much appreciated.
1: Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of Mission-Based Media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player, so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Help or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borovic, and catch you next time.